This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers has signed an executive order banning TikTok on state-issued devices, according to WKOW. The order directs the Department of Administration's Division of Enterprise Technology to prohibit certain technologies, softwares, and vendors that pose cybersecurity threats. TikTok belongs to a company with a connection to the Chinese Communist Party, states Evers' order. The DOA has the responsibility of managing the state's IT assets and helps develop strategies and policies for state technology improvements. The department has been in regular conversation with Homeland Security, the FBI, and other agencies to advise in decisions about cybersecurity. Cigarette sales are on the decline. The Wisconsin Policy Forum reports sales of cigarettes have fallen in recent years. In 2022, about 193 million packs of cigarettes were sold legally. Now that number is fewer than half the amount sold in 2001. From 2000 to 2021, the population of Wisconsin adult smokers has decreased from 24% of the population to 13% of the population. Likely causes for the drop include the growth of substitute products and changes in local policy. Wisconsin has passed multiple tax rate increases for cigarettes and banned smoking in indoor spaces. One impact of the change is that the state's tax revenues have fallen, but fewer smokers also means lower rates of diseases like cancer and heart disease. The Madison City Council's Executive Committee is recommending Barbara Vetta Vetter be appointed as interim alder for District 12 on the city's east side. That seat has been vacant since December after Syed Abbas resigned to spend more time with his family and while moving out of the district. The committee chose from applicants who had previously served on the council, live in District 12, and have no intentions of running in the April election. Vetter was a council member from 1995 to 2001. There were four resident applications for the position, but the council voted to not move forward with their interviews to avoid creating an incumbent advantage in the April election. Three of the four had plans to run, according to Council President Keith Furman. Madisonians are running out of time to submit names for snowplows. The city's streets and engineering divisions are taking names for four vehicles and the naming window closes tomorrow at 4 p.m. Over 1,000 names have already been suggested. Popular entries include the Big Laplowski, Representative Mark Plowcan, and more pun-filled names. After Friday, a list of 10 finalists for each vehicle will be selected. On January 23rd, the Water Quality Coalition, Wisconsin SaltWise, will open an election on its website so you can vote for your favorites. If you've got a good idea, email your suggestion directly to dropoff at cityofmadison.com. Residents are encouraged to use references to pop culture and local characters to highlight Madison's quirky spirit. And now on to today's top stories.
Conversion therapy has been banned in 20 states across the country and has been decried as harmful to LGBTQ youth from organizations across the world. But today, state Republicans struck down a ban on therapists performing or advocating for the practice. WRT producer Nate Wiggyout has more. The state's powerful rules committee struck down a rule today that would have banned therapists from performing conversion therapy on LGBTQ patients. The decision, which passed on a 6-4 vote after a four-hour public hearing, allows therapists to continue to try and change the sexual or gender identity of their patients. The Joint Committee of Administrative Rules oversees rulemaking by state agencies, and all rules must be approved by the committee before they can be fully implemented. The state's Family Therapy and Social Work Examining Board is an arm of the Department of Safety and Professional Services and works to license and regulate therapists and social workers across the state. In 2020, the board introduced a rule barring therapists from promoting or participating in conversion therapy. Under the rule, therapists who performed conversion therapy could be subjected to a fine as well as lose their license. But shortly after it was introduced, the Rules Committee put a temporary block on the rule, allowing therapists to continue to perform the practice with LGBTQ patients. That temporary ban only lasted until the end of the legislative session, and so the Rules Committee met again last year to block the ban. When the legislative session came to an end at the beginning of this month, the rule technically came back into effect, and today the Rules Committee met to block the ban once again. Conversion therapy is defined under the rule as any intervention or method that has the purpose of trying to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. GLAD, a national LGBTQ advocacy group, says that conversion therapy is a dangerous practice. They point to research from San Francisco State University, which says LGBTQ youth who undergo conversion therapy were more than eight times more likely to attempt suicide and nearly six times more likely to report high levels of depression compared to LGBTQ youth who are shown acceptance of their identity. The practice has been banned in 20 states and has been denounced by dozens of organizations, such as the American Psychological Association, the World Health Organization, and the American Medical Association. Mark Herstand is with the National Association of Social Workers, which has also denounced conversion therapy. At a public hearing today, Herstand lambasted the committee for trying to block the ban once again. This is an extremely harmful uh, practice. Uh, that causes major mental health and suicidal ideology among uh, young people and and people who receive this therapy. But the Republican-controlled committee insisted today that their decision is not based on the merits of conversion therapy, but instead on the authority the Social Work Examining Board has to enact such a rule. Republican State Senator Stephen Nass of Whitewater, who chairs the rule committee, says the decision to ban conversion therapy belongs to the legislature. The legislature has, as I said, their legislative duties, and the board regulates ethics. This gets into a policy decision, and that's where we have a disagreement. If we allow that to happen, this can go in, and other policies in the future, it will set a precedent, and I don't know where it'll stop. The state legislature has had two opportunities to decide on conversion therapy. In 2021, the Republican-led Rules Committee put forward a bill to permanently block the conversion therapy ban, but that bill died in committee. 
Democrats also put forward their own bill that year to officially ban the practice, but that too died in committee. Proponents of the ban say that because the legislature failed to act on the practice one way or another, the decision on whether or not to allow conversion therapy in Wisconsin should be left to the board. Democratic Senator Kelda Royce of Madison says that not only is she morally appalled by reversing the ban, but it also allows therapists to take advantage of parents of LGBTQ children who may not know that the therapist intends on performing conversion therapy. If this vote today suspends the rule, everyone here should be clear about the message that it sends to LGBTQ young people in the state, to families, that Wisconsin is a place that will allow harm to come to those children, that we will not stand up and protect consumers, and that we will go against all the science. If the legislature takes no other action on conversion therapy this session, the decision to lift the ban on the practice will stay in effect until March of 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggy Help. A federal appeals court has rejected a lawsuit filed against the city of Madison by an advertising company earlier this month, alleging that the city's signage laws are unconstitutional. Though this decision might be the final nail in the coffin for the recent lawsuit, the company that filed the lawsuit has been battling the city for decades to get the signage laws changed. WORT producer Aaron Ashley has a scoop. Earlier this month, the city of Madison fended off a long-simmering legal challenge to its sign ordinances. The lawsuit was filed by Adams Outdoor Advertising, which owns more than several dozen billboards locally. The suit takes issue with the city's restrictions on the height, placement, and type of allowable billboards. First filed in 2017, the lawsuit was dismissed by a panel of three judges on the Seventh Circuit of the Court of Appeals. I spoke with Michael Haas, city attorney for Madison. That's really what their lawsuit was about, was it was a a broad challenge to the ordinance on its face and as it was applied to the applications that Adams had, had, the permits that Adams had applied for. But this isn't the first time that Adams and the city of Madison have come to blows. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the conflict began in 1989 when the city of Madison amended its already complex sign ordinances to prohibit the construction of new advertising billboards and restricting existing billboards to specific sizes. These ordinances were expanded in 2009 to not allow digital billboards. The city says that the goal is to make sure that drivers aren't distracted and that their view isn't obstructed. Another goal is to promote the city's aesthetic value by keeping the public right-of-way clear. These amendments have been a point of contention for Adams Outdoor Advertising, which first filed suit against the city of Madison soon after the ordinances were adopted, on the grounds that they impose unconstitutional restrictions on advertising signs, but do not apply similar restrictions to construction or voting signs. Adams' first lawsuit was struck down in 1993. Although the city has different provisions for voting and construction signs, they are still expected to follow the same basic requirements of keeping the public right-of-way clear. But that didn't stop the company from continuing to fight against the ordinances as the years went by. The most recent lawsuit filed by Adams against the city of Madison was filed in 2017, after the city rejected 25 out of 26 permit applications to modify the size and height of existing billboards and to build digital billboards, which violate the city's ordinances. 
Adams alleged that this constituted an unfair discrimination and that their First Amendment rights were being violated. Fast forward to April of 2020. A federal judge dismissed the lawsuit, stating that no constitutional violations exist in Madison's sign ordinances. The judge further stated that if Madison wants to turn Capitol Square into Times Square, that is a right reserved for the city to make. Adams took the ruling to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Which takes us to earlier this month, when a panel of three judges on the Seventh Circuit sided with the city of Madison and dismissed Adams' lawsuit. The panel also barred Adams from filing another suit on the same issue. The panel also affirmed the city of Madison's right to regulate and prohibit advertising signage and digital billboards. This new precedent comes after a recent ruling between the Reagan National Advertising Company and the city of Austin, which cleared up previous legal uncertainties surrounding regulation of signs as a form of free speech. So, what comes next? For Adams, there are a couple of options available. The company could appeal to the full body of the Seventh Circuit. Haas says that Adams could also bring the lawsuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. WORT reached out to Adams for comment, but did not receive a response by broadcast. Reporting for WORT, I'm Aaron Ashley. Madison's 4th Alder District, containing the Capitol Square and a large chunk of downtown, has been represented by the same Alder since 1995 and hasn't seen a primary election since 1997. But all that changes this year as three candidates are running in February's primary to represent the district. We kick off our coverage of the District 4 Alder primary election with Maxwell Lubenstein, a student at UW-Madison. Lubenstein spoke with WORT producer Nick Wigihout earlier this week to talk about why he is running to represent downtown Madison. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an older seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 4. That district sits at the heart of downtown, containing the Capitol Square, down to Regent Street and parts of John Nolan Drive. Maxwell Laubenstein is one of the three candidates who will be running in the February primary for that Alder seat and joins me now by phone. Maxwell, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Hi, thanks for having me. So just to sort of start things off here, Maxwell, tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? All right, well... At heart, I'm probably an environmentalist. Um, I came to Madison looking to study. A, I'm a biological and engineering student. I was hoping to one day work in the field of ecological restoration. But over the years, I realized how intersectional so many environmental issues are and realized how many areas in the community could use a voice and use some help. So I became an activist and organizer. And now I'm just somebody who's trying to help lift the voice of the community and help represent this part of Madison. I, now, Maxwell, why are you running for Alder? Well, again, I, I think that cuts back to trying to raise the voice of the community. It's been 24 years or so since the people in this part of Madison have had the opportunity to choose what values they want to support on the ballot. There are a number of issues from affordable housing to development of sustainable infrastructure to just support for actually marginalized communities in the area that just haven't been adequately met for so long. And I want to turn the city from being a passively democratic to being actively progressive and to pursue policies that actively support the people who live here and who honestly have a, a lot of room for help. And Maxwell, have you ever previously held any type of elected office? On a municipal level, I've not held office. I did serve as the uh, Student Services Finance Committee Chair for the student government for the past year, where we oversaw 
couple hundred million dollar budget, and we're able to do things from accessing resources for mental health funding uh, services to expanding uh, survivor services on campus, developing a co-responder model for emergencies to provide mental health-oriented res- uh, responders, to just helping laborers and workers and finding ways to support representation and raise the wage. And when you're not studying or working or working on your campaign here, what do you do in your spare time, Maxwell? Well, <laughs> I'm a, a student, of course, so but I, I do have a passion for them learning. So I'm in my own private hobbies, I design little models and trinkets. I'm a 3D printer. I read. I make art. But I also love to partake in a lot of the community activities. Just this weekend, my uh, my partner and I went on the, uh, one of the city nature walks down at Tenney Park, and I do love a lot of the uh, similar community-oriented activities. I volunteer uh, sometimes down at Wilmar, and I try and get involved in the people in the area where I can. Now, turning our eye on to Madison, what are some of the most pressing issues facing the city that you would want to address? I think what many people are going to say is the immediate need for available, accessible, affordable housing. The city has promoted a lot of initiatives. I've put in either high-end or inaccessible housing financially. For instance, the new Olive Department, while having some limitations to allow for affordable units, is largely out of the price range, which many would consider accessible. But as there are new plots and new developments under purview and underway for the city, I would say the most pressing issue is to make sure that those plots are built in a way that's sustainable and a way that creates accessible housing for the community that lives here and doesn't just try to incentivize a higher income bracket that doesn't quite exist yet. And now, Maxwell, you've mentioned housing a couple of times now, so now I want to get into a couple specific issues here facing Madison. And let's start off with housing there. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to get more affordable housing here in Madison? The most current initiative, or the one that's most pressing to this election, is going to be out of district in southeast Madison. There is the Voigt Farms property, which is currently contested by two different development plans. The council determined by the selection will vote whether the Save the Farms plan, which would promote a ch- which would set a chunk for wetland restoration, a chunk for sustainable urban agriculture, and a chunk for affordable housing, would win over the opposing plan, which would simply promote a a small chunk for restoration and a large uh, chunk for high-rise and luxury development. That that contention is what I would believe is the current most pressing development plan and the most immediate and actionable route for developing affordable housing in the area for this election. There are a number of properties up in question right now as far as how they're going to be developed in the near future. Again, it's going to come down to developing in a way that's sustainable, supports communities here, that's not displacing low- or middle-income individuals, and that helps to provide living and city resources in a way that's both accessible and affordable to our community. Now let's move over to transit. As we know, bus rapid transit is set to take into effect this summer. How do you feel about bus rapid transit? We are living in a city. The city is growing pretty quickly now. Uh, bus rapid transit is ultimately going to mean to increase access to services, jobs, etc., for people who are living further on the outsorts. And I am in favor of actions such as BRT that do support the, you know, this increased accessibility for the citizens of Madison. There is some contention about whether uh, you know the, the increase in buses on state would be positive or negative. My point would be that 
there will, it will be leading to less cars, less uh, traffic, less, less congestion in the area, and it will be helping to, again, bring these people who don't have such easy access to the benefits of the city and yet are paying for them to be able to have the access to enjoy and utilize these assets and, and highlights of the city, such as state, downtown, business around the capital, and past and west wash, areas that are not really easily accessible to a lot of the city. Now, the final issue I want to take a look at is the F-35s, which are set to touch down here in Madison this year. How do you feel about that? So, the F-35s are a situation where it's it's kind of been determined at this point. Common Council already voted against it. It Ultimately, while it might provide some economic and otherwise benefit for the city as a whole, it's not a positive for the community itself, for the people who are living here. And... So many citizens have tried to speak up against it, but again, at this point, it's something that the city has voted on, and it seems that we are going to be well, moving forward with anyway. Now, Maxwell, sometimes issues get complicated in the city council. Now, let's say that there's an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen, and other constituents want to see the opposite happen. How would you handle that situation? There are a lots of different individuals, vastly different individuals represented in D4, from the condo opener, uh, owners around the capital to young and low, in- low rent and low income individuals living around the Midland area. There are going to be contentious issues where people are not on the same page, not equally satisfied. But this election, for one, is going to be an opportunity to have a, a choice in values on the ballot, specifically in the fact that we are being primaried and then generally elected. And also, this is really where it comes down to just constituent contact. I'm somebody who is directly involved regularly with so many members of the community. And when it comes to contentious issues like that, I think it comes down to fully understanding both the forward and opposition aspects and arguments to their their root, to their valued extent, and to ensuring that the decision made on the basis of those positions is one that accurately does its best to benefit the community as a whole and to help, you know, help the community moving forward. Now, Maxwell, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us here? This is going to be an incredibly important election. It's the first time in, I think, 23 years we'll have had more than a single candidate on the ballot for D4. So please come out to vote. If you want to reach out or help with the campaign, you can go to maxwellformadison.com. But again, go vote. Go make sure your voice is heard. That's how we, you know, make. That's how we forge the city into the thing that we want it to be. That's how we make take, make action, make it concrete make it progressive, form the city into something that helps the community that lives here. Go vote. I look forward to hearing hearing from anybody. I've been talking with Maxwell Laubenstein, who will be running in the February primary election for the Aldersea in District 4. The primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Maxwell, thank you again for coming on and talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I am your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we bring you an excerpt from Out of the Box podcast, which focuses on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. 
This week, contributor D Stars sits down with Mark Antony, also known as DJ Spade. He shares with us how he did nine years in prison and came home to his family with a plan and a hunger to beat the odds and succeed. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with DJ Spade. What's up, DJ Spade? How you feeling, man? Man, chilling, man. Cooling, bro. Thanks for having me. And thanks for gracing us with your presence today. For the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? DJ, right? I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Lived out in Long Island, New York for a little while. Shout out to Long Beach, New York. A music lover, you know what I'm saying? Hip-hop enthusiast. Been in prison for the last nine years. Been home now for six months. I moved out to Madison, Wisconsin. Actually, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was there first. That's where I caught my case. I caught my case in Milwaukee. I moved out here 2011. Seven months later, I found myself facing a 16-year bid. That's what I was sentenced to. I was unduly harsh sentenced. I was given 16 years for delivery manufacturing, two ounces of cocaine, my first time ever in prison. Fought the case for nine years. Finally, a DA admitted to making mistakes in my sentencing transcripts, and I got, you know, abruptly released. I want to give a shout out to Kelly Thompson and Melissa Fitzsimmons, who were the public defenders who went out their way to take my case because they knew something was wrong. Again, been home only six months. While in prison, I met my girl. I met my fiance. We actually just did a show not too long ago about relationships while incarcerated. Before we go into that, let's start with this. You came here from Brooklyn, right? I actually came here from Puerto Rico. Okay. Uh, Now we got to go back. We're in Puerto Rico. (laughs) Yes, I I was living in Luquillo. Luquillo. Uh, My family's from Canoana, man. Shout out to everybody out there. From where? Canoanas, San Isidro Canoana, right by Loisa. Okay, okay, okay. My wife family is from Camuy. All right. Yeah. Okay. So you moved from Puerto Rico to the States, landed in Brooklyn. No, no, no. All right. So so let's get it. Let's get it. Come All on. right. So <laughs> I went from Brooklyn to Florida. Well, Long Island to Florida, New York to Florida. Right. Out there, I got picked up. Uh, I went on an audition as a DJ at Club Envy by Universal Studios. Okay. And uh, I ended up getting picked up by All Pro Records. The promoter for All Pro was in the crowd, liked what I did, got picked up by them, was DJing for them for a little while. From there, moved to Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, met up with the Rough Riders. State representative Eli, shout out to Eli, them Rough Riders out there, Rough Rider chapter Puerto Rico. And I was just dealing with them for a little while. From Puerto Rico, met the girl I came out here with. And then again, seven months later, found myself, you know, in a jam. So I'm not going to say I was an innocent man, but I wasn't guilty of what I was charged with. Okay. They gave me them charges because I was not willing to testify against the person that actually sold the drugs. Okay. So that's, I ended up getting his charges. Because you refused to cooperate. Absolutely. So you refused to cooperate. You know, you said, hey, I'm not saying that I did, but I'm not saying that I didn't. Yeah. Basically what they needed was they already knew who sold the drugs. Because what happened was ATF was brought to my doorstep by another individual. The person that sold the drugs came to my house, but they never saw him. I had to go downstairs, grab it and bring it up for him because I wouldn't testify. They needed my testimony in court in order to be able to charge him. And I wasn't going. How much time did you end up doing? Did nine years. Where? Stanley, the Resource Center, Fox Lake, Oregon, Oak Hill. I went all the way down. So you didn't have like a traditional set time. No. You was fighting it that whole time. Yeah. Which is crazy because it's like they sent you to prison while you still fighting your case. So I was fighting it under appeal. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You got the time and you was like, okay, I'm, I'll just come back on an appeal. So right now, as far as your paperwork is concerned, did they exonerate you? No, and they didn't exonerate me was because I pled guilty to the charges. In my head, I was thinking I'd never been to prison. I got no major record. I got minor drug convictions on my record in New York. So from 98 
to 2011, when I caught these charges, there was more than a 10-year gap of a felony. Mm. My first and one and only felony on my record was what's called in New York a paper felony. I served 15 days in jail with five years probation on that felony. It was a minor felony. So in my head, I'm thinking, you know what I'm saying? I, I'll get four, three, maybe. four, maybe. Never in my wildest dreams that I think I get 16. So they hit you with the 16, and since the truth and sentencing, they wanted you to do 16. They wanted me to do 10 in and then six on papers. So you almost ended up serving the whole 10, so you really only saved a year. A year. And they reduced my paper two years. In all honesty, I still got 13 years for two ounces of cocaine that didn't belong to me. How often have you seen situations like that in prison with people being unjustly sentenced? All the time. All the time. And again, my first prison experience. You know, I came from New York on that bus ride from Dodge to my first stop, which was Stanley. I was mentally preparing myself for what people in New York were teaching me prison was. Right. You know, you get them scary uh, stories about the yard. Right, right. You know, about gangs, about, you know, just, you know, protecting yourself. Right. 24 hour surveillance on yourself. So when I got out there, you know, in my head again on that bus ride, I'm like, it's about to go down. I'm about to go sharpen this toothbrush. Right. I'm going to hit the yard, see where the brothers is at, and, and we going to go from there. And, you know, thank God it wasn't that. For the most part of my bed, no problems. You know what I'm saying? One altercation in nine years. I mean, I got along with everybody. I was the barber, too. I cut hair as well. Oh, yeah. That's that's a... You know what I'm saying? That's always a plus. Yeah, it's all... It's, it's, um, You're the one that's keeping them crispy for them yeah. visits. Yeah, so, you know, I thank God... You know, I'm, I'm grateful and I appreciate the fact that I ain't have to worry about so much that. Like, right. You know what I'm saying? There was nobody the drama. Yeah. Yeah, running up in my room trying to do nothing to me. You know what I'm saying? I was at peace with everybody always. For the most part, I got through it like that. But my first two years were the worst because I lost both my parents within my first four months down. Oh, man. You know? hear that. And again, you know, I didn't have no family out here. The girl I came out here with took off on me ASAP. As, you know what I'm saying? As to be expected. Yeah. And, um. You just got, what, 16 years? Yeah. And, you know, I didn't expect for her to stay with me, like, as far as relationship, but to be considerate of the fact that she knew I was out here alone. I ain't have no family out here, nothing. You know what I'm saying? But that's n neither here nor there. You know what I mean? It, that That is what it is. And um, I believe that, that God watched over me the entire time and, and had a bigger plan for me. And I didn't have no expectations of moving to Madison. I never been to Madison. Right. I ain't know nobody in Madison, nothing. Whole idea was getting out and going back home. Which is a process in itself, too. Yeah. I mean, you got you got to file for interstate compact and all that other stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, I, I have to give, you know, God, you know, all the glory and appreciation for how everything turned out. And, you know, that's how we go back to, you know, the whole fiance thing and, and the girl and how I met her inside and all that stuff. So how did you meet your fiance? So I'm all the way up damn near in Canada and, and Stanley and there's no hip hop music on the station. Exactly. That's, that's over with. So, you know, you meet people. And a lot of people hear of you, especially through the barbering, like, yo, that's New York. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, they either call me New York or they call me by my first name or they call me Spade, whatever the case was. I get to Fox Lake. You know, I meet a couple people in there and we talking about music and we talking about DJing and who knows this and who knows that one and all that. You know how that goes? They're like, hey, yo, you know we can get the hip hop station. Boom. Right. So, <laughs> you like, what? So one of the youngins that I meet at the first spot where I was in Fox Lake Unit 4 was like, yo, they got a hip-hop show on Saturday nights, you know what I'm saying, at 12 midnight, bro. And and in my head, I'm, yeah, well, what kind of hip-hop y'all playing out here? And, uh, man, I tune in, bro, and it's and it's Mob Deep, and it's Nas, and it's Jigga, and it's, and I'm forget about it. First night, I couldn't wait, you know what I'm saying? So... Boss lady always, you know, she she caters to the prisons. She had the, you know, the hotline for people to call in, shout out, 
you know, people were writing in letters, doing right. their requests and all that. So uh, absolutely, uh, she had made a call for prison art. You know, what I'm saying for people that wanted to get they they art displayed. You know, because we not allowed we not allowed to sell it, quote unquote, enterprise. That was D Star, host of the Out of the Box podcast, talking with Mark Anthony, otherwise known as DJ Spade. You can find the full interview on the Out of the Box podcast wherever you get your podcasts. After a chillier than expected weekend, the ice around Madison is holding firm, meaning that ice fishing can continue on many lakes. On this week's Fishy Business, Nate Wiggy Houghton and Pat Hansberg break down where the fish are biting around town. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, uh, we are just talking. the uh, The weekend was a little bit chillier than we anticipated, so let's just start off with how the ice is looking around here in the uh, Madison area. The ice around town is actually in great shape. Um, there, we didn't make a lot of ice, but we didn't lose any ice either. So a lot of the ice we were talking about last week is still uh, around. And I've been hearing about some folks getting out over the deep water on uh, Mendota and Monona looking for perch. And uh, the ice out there sounds like it's about four to five inches, so not ready for ATV traffic yet. But foot traffic's been uh, generally okay. Well, then let's get into that, starting off with uh, Lake Mendota. What's happening there? Well, uh, all around the lake in the shallow areas, they're still doing well, uh, getting uh, some walleyes. Usually that's uh, around dark, maybe at four to six uh, in the evening, kind of bite. Uh, a lot of good pike action all around those same areas all day long. Uh, a lot of those fish in the 20 to 30 inch range, same as we had all summer. Uh, but I have been hearing about some nice fish, a couple couple coming through over 40 inches. So some real trophy fish out there too. Um, not a lot in the shallow areas for panfish that I've heard, but like I just mentioned, uh, a few folks are starting to get out and find some perch over the deep water. But uh, you know, that ice is something you, you want to be a little careful around, but it, from what I hear, it's generally four to five inches all across the, the whole lake out there. All right, and now let's go over to uh, Lake Monona. What's happening there? Uh, Monona's been about the same thing. Uh, a lot of good walleye action, shallow, same evening bite has been good. I've heard about a good early morning bite. Um, not as many pikes that I've been hearing about getting uh Reported over there, but um, folks are starting to venture out uh, over that deep water looking for perch. I've heard about a few small schools being found, but, um, you know, there's a lot of winter left. Those fish are going to start to school up and be found over deep water. Um, Monona Bay has had a really strong uh, bluegill bite down there. A lot of smaller fish, but the action is very steady. And, uh, you know, a few decent pike coming out of there, too, actually. Now let's move over to uh, Wingra, one of my favorite uh, ice fishing places here in Madison. What's happening there? Uh, Wingra's been uh, actually picking up. It started out a little bit slow, but um, I think folks just had to move around a little bit and try to find where the fish were located. But usually they're decently shallow, and uh, it seems like they're out a little bit deeper. So folks have been finding fish out there in about 10 feet of water or so. A lot of small bluegills and some small perch, uh, but some decent tip-up action over there too for, for pike and some largemouth bass. Now let's move over to Wabisa. What's happening on Lake Wabisa? Uh, Wabisa itself has actually been kind of slow from the reports I hear. Um, the, up on the north end of the lake at Lake Farm Park, there isn't a lot of weeds out there right now, so fish have been harder to find. Uh, a little bit of bluegill action on the south end of the lake in the south bay there. 
But other than that, it's been pretty quiet as far as I've heard from panfish. A few folks getting perch out in the main lake basin, 30, 35 feet of water, um, but, uh, and, and some walleyes uh, also shallow too, uh, just like on Monona and Mendota, but um, that action's been spotty there too. Uh, but the best bite over in the Wabisa area has been on Upper Mud, which is connected just directly north of Wabisa in the dredge hole out there. Um, folks have been getting some good bluegills. I've been hearing about some crappies suspended and uh, some good um, uh, pike action, too, on tip-ups. All right, last one, uh, last lake we'll cover for today, Lake Kiganza. What's happening there? Well, Kiganza's been, it, it continues to be a mystery for a lot of folks. And, um, you know, I hear about some perch out deep, but it, that action's spotty. I hear about some bluegills, shallow, some really nice ones, actually, but that action's spotty. Um, they do have plenty of ice. It sounds like eight, nine inches all across the lake. Folks are running ATVs out there and, and looking for fish. But from what I hear, they get they got a lot of lookers, but not a lot of takers. And now I have to ask, like I said, you know, uh, trout season, catch and release trout season opened up. Uh, I believe it was not, not too long ago now. Uh, have you heard anything about the trout bite? Yeah, the trout, uh, trout season opened officially on Saturday uh, this last week. And I've had uh, some good reports. The, the temperatures, like like we said, were a little cooler than uh, predicted, but folks still made it out. I, I saw some some good catches, mostly uh, subsurface uh, type type deals. But um, there were a few people that reported hatches of uh, some tiny midges coming off, and some little black caddis and stoneflies. So the fish are looking up, and you know we've got the the whole rest of the year ahead of us now. So uh, yeah, so only going to get better, I think. All right, keeping it short today, Pat, any uh, final parting fishing advice for all the people out there? Well, it looks like a nice week ahead, some decent temps uh, with a a cool down coming later on. But uh, like I said, the ice conditions out there are pretty great and uh, a lot of fish to be caught. So just get out there and enjoy it. You're not going to catch them sitting at home, that's for sure. Well, I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop, and you can hear an updated fishing report. Anytime that you want, just call one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again for talking this week, and good luck out there. Same. Always a pleasure, Nate. Cultural appropriation is an enormously complicated concept that can't be defined in a matter of minutes. Dakota Mace is a Diné or Navajo artist and researcher who focuses on the cultural appropriation of indigenous design work, material culture, and textile history. In this archival episode of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields and Mace take the first of many steps to unpack the problem of appropriation and commodification of culture. Cultural appropriation can get pretty complex when trying to define the exact term and how it relates to um, certain identities and um, cultural beliefs. But for myself, cultural appropriation is basically the taking of a culture's um, either designs or, you know, cultural elements and using it uh, for their benefit. So not giving any financial incentive or support back to the communities that they're pulling from. Most of the conversations that I have with people about cultural appropriation, they're looking for a way, they're looking for permission. 
They're looking for me as a, as a black woman to give them permission to do these things, whether or not I come from that culture. When you're talking about this in the broader scope, do you find that sort of argument where people are basically looking to you to give permission and not necessarily truly understand what it is that is the issue? Oh, yes, definitely. All the time. Um, so this is something that has been happening recently within the last couple of years, uh, where a lot of either individuals or organizations or even instructors reach out to me to kind of get feedback in terms of if something is being appropriated. And I try to be as clear as possible saying, usually it's best to do your own research in terms of understanding what cultural appropriation is, how you would personally define it. But like I said, it varies from, you know, area to area, um, especially when talking about cultural appropriation within design, or even arts, there's different kind of guidelines and rules when it comes to that. So that's why cultural appropriation is kind of a very fine line between whether it's appreciation or appropriation. Um, but for you know most individuals that I talk to, I try to give them as much context in terms of why it is hurtful for certain communities um, and why it's important to be able to teach those histories because most often these are the histories that are kind of omitted from books and everything and it's not as very widely talked about as it should be. And I think the one thing that people, I don't want to say that people, let me just put this into a personal, let me just speak for myself here. This isn't new, but it seems now that there is an eye turned to it. What turned your eye to it? What is it that, that brought it to your attention that really sort of, as my mother would say, put that taste in your mouth? Yeah. Uh, so the first time that really kind of impacted me was leaving my home state of New Mexico. Um, so in New Mexico, I'm surrounded not only by my own culture, but a lot of a blend of different indigenous cultures within that region. Um, so it's very heavy on our heritage and our history. So coming up to Wisconsin, that was kind of one of my first times experiencing the way that people kind of appropriate our identity. And it was actually a trip to Urban Outfitters um, and realizing a lot of the designs that they were pulling from were taken out of context. So certain designs are related either to um, ceremony, especially within the Diné culture. Sand paintings are extremely important, but there were jackets with the Gebeches on there. Um, you know, there was underwear with Navajo or Diné design elements on it. So it was kind of a huge disrespect to not only myself, but also to the community that I represent. Um, and it's just the fact that people saw it just as an aesthetic appeal and not understanding that it's connected to a very long line and history of Indigenous people. The thing that struck me when I was reading some of the information you sent me, some of your research and some of your writings, was the idea that they were putting it on underwear and flasks. Mm -hmm. That some of the, the focus of it was also on sex and alcohol. Yes. So the focus on that was because a lot of what unfortunately happens within indigenous communities is that there isn't a lot of support when it comes to dealing with especially historical uh, trauma. So those connections of our ancestors kind of being removed from their land or their original homes and kind of placed on reservations and then later on within those reservations being limited in terms of support from either the government um, or for local communities. So 
This led to a really big push for a lot of indigenous community or indigenous individuals to be um, kind of using, you know, whether that was alcohol or drugs. And, you know, a lot of violence happens within these communities. And again, goes unreported and there's no support that happens. So that trauma continues from one generation to the next. And it's something that a lot of younger indigenous people are trying to make a change from is creating organizations and support groups where they're able to kind of have an out or kind of a better outlook in terms of how they can better in our kind of belief system heal themselves and be able to refine that balance and for a lot of indigenous people that's through art um, just because it's heavily connected to our stories. And it's that idea that when you see because I looked up to see if Urban Outfitters had anything and they had a blanket, but it, they, they couched it under vintage, vintage design. So you have this entire community, this entire people, that their identity has been filtered through this lens of what people outside the community have deemed as their normal. So when you watch everything back from, I can't think of it now, Lone Ranger, to it's this idealized, stylized, where you, you take the beautiful and you co-opt it and you filter it through this lens and you make it comical. And you, it's so prevalent that people outside of Native communities don't get that that's not what's really going on. That that's not the identity of Native people. Exactly. And this is something that you especially speak to about kind of seeing the Lone Ranger as an example. Uh, so Hollywood is actually one of the main reasons why a lot of stereotypes have been pushed for Indigenous people. Um, and it was during this era of kind of creating these different characters. Um, and it's so funny to kind of watch a lot of these films because when they ask the Indigenous people to speak in their language, they're actually <laughs> making fun of individuals <laughs> in our language. Um, so it's a really interesting comparison to what representation we have now from, you know, either 50 years ago or even 100 years ago. And it's during this time that people don't realize that indigenous people were still fighting for our rights. And one thing that I really, you know, I think is important to bring up is that all of this interest in indigenous people led to this very hippie or bohemian culture. And it was during the 70s that indigenous people, especially here in the U.S., were still unable to practice their own spiritual or ceremonial practices. And it wasn't until the 70s that that was actually passed. So to be able to live during and see an era where it was just, you know, people taking our identity and using it in a way that was disrespectful to us, but also not realizing the heavy historical context behind it. I was thinking about that in the drive over, like how hippie culture is just a bunch of borrowed and manipulated and it's pulled from all these cultures. And when, when I talk to people who identify as hippie, it's like not only have you co-opted all these cultures, but now you've renamed it mm -hmm. and you've made it your own without any understanding of where that comes from. And it, you know, yeah, OK, your festivals are bright and colorful, but you don't have any connection to what this really means. Mm -hmm. And you're profiting off of it because you're selling these things as well. Exactly. And I think that's been the biggest pushback is these different types of designers or artists who, and especially just stores, especially around here in Madison, who still continue that perpetuation of the, the hippie culture. And it's in those places that I get really 
frustrated personally myself because there's a lot of things that we consider as indigenous people very important such as you know picking sage is part of that process and to see these sage bundles being sold at this kind of weird wholesale value of like what it's not intended to be and for people to just kind of pick them up and purchase them and not have a better a good understanding of the reason why that sage is equally important you know it's just very difficult to kind of navigate with but that's something the reason why I created a lot of the, or helped develop the cultural appropriation workshop through the Center of Design and Material Culture was to be able to educate people a little further and to be able to kind of understand a little bit more about cultural appropriation and appreciation and to kind of decide on their own whether something is being appropriated. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people are afraid of is making that decision. And it's something that they need to learn themselves because most of the time it's, you know, it's difficult to ask a person of color, you know, to be able to explain why cultural appropriation is bad and it shouldn't be put onto us to be able to explain that. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at Six. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter this evening was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget to stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening, and good night. WRT Masson.